Please pray with me. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let me start this morning by saying that uh, I'm actually glad to be here with you. I've made a new New Year's resolution to show up on the Sundays that I'm scheduled to preach. After all, as, as Woody Allen once said, 80% of success is showing up. So I feel like I'm off to a pretty good start today. For those of you who don't know, I was stuck in Atlanta last week. I was supposed to preach. It wasn't too long ago that I was saying thank you to, to Lori for filling in on the spur of the moment when our son Malachi decided to be born on Sunday morning that I was supposed to preach. And then last week I'm saying thank you to Wes for stepping in at the last minute. I certainly don't plan to make this a habit, but at the rate I'm going, John and Cindy might want to have sermons ready to go just in case. So now that, uh, now that we're into the second week of January, how many of you have already broken one or more of your New Year's resolutions? I see no hands. <laughs> I see some honest people and some liars, I think. <clears throat> I have to confess, I've already broken a couple of mine. Change is tough, isn't it? It's a, it's a difficult thing. A couple of weeks ago, I received an email titled, New Year's Resolutions You Can Keep. And it, it, it read, are you sick of making the same resolutions year after year that you never keep? Why not promise to do something you can actually accomplish? And here are some resolutions that you can use as a starting point. Gain weight. At least 30 pounds. Stop exercising. It's a waste of time. Watch more TV. Procrastinate more, starting tomorrow. And get further in debt. Well, those may be some resolutions that you can keep, but somehow I don't think that they're resolutions that are really worth keeping. This morning I'm sharing the message that I'd planned to share with you last week. As you can see, the title of this morning's message is Resolutions for the New Year, Take Two. One of the things that I'm most thankful for as I walk this journey of faith is that our God is a God of second takes, second chances, a God of new beginnings. What better time than the start of a new year to commit ourselves to a new start with God and to reaffirm that He is indeed a God of second and third and fourth chances. In Micah chapter 6, our passage for this morning is a wonderful place to start if we're looking for spiritual resolutions for the new year. It was written to the people of Judah in the days before they were exiled to Babylon. It applies to each one of us here this morning. It's a strong statement to every one of us about what it means to be in covenant relationship with God. In the first two verses of chapter 6, the prophet Micah takes us into a courtroom where we are told to plead our case. We, the accused, sit in the box. The mountains and hills that have been around since the beginning of creation and have seen everything are the witnesses for the prosecution. To our horror and dismay, we discover that the prosecutor is God himself. And the charge is that we have failed to remember. We failed to remember all he's done for us. 
In verses 3 to 5, God himself, the prosecutor, makes makes his case against us. But instead of accusing us of a whole list of failures, as one might expect in such a lawsuit, he begins with a series of questions, amazing questions that reveal his tender care, actually. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. You hear the tender care, the concern, maybe the hurt. God's judgment is real, and He'll do what He has to do to get our attention. But He doesn't really want to punish us or put us away for our offenses. No, He wants us to take a a long, hard look at our relationship with Him. Notice that Micah, unlike other prophets, doesn't seem to be too concerned that we have broken laws. He's more concerned that we have broken the heart of God by failing to remember all that He's done for us. From the first days after the Exodus, for that matter, from, uh, from the first days after creation, humanity has had a hard time remembering that we live in God's hands. And so we find ourselves being questioned by God. When you were born, who gave you life? When you were in trouble, who rescued you from disease, the old addictions, bad relationships, and lost dreams? When you were alone, who gave you every relationship that you now cherish? The sacred prosecutor is unrelenting. You forgot that it was all a gift from me. This is a pretty serious charge, forgetting what God has done for us. Craig Barnes says, Every time we forget that we exist by the hand of God, we begin to act like gods ourselves. Then the worst things start to happen. When mortals try to act like gods, they only hurt others. Karl Barth once said, All sin is rooted in the lack of gratitude. When our hearts are not filled with thanksgiving for what God has done, They're inevitably filled with anxiety over what we have not done. And out of our anxiety about ourselves, we fail to care for others with the steadfast love with which God has cared for us. In verses 6 and 7, Micah continues his courtroom drama by anticipating our response. He places the questions on our lips for us. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? In essence, Micah is saying that we ask ourselves what God wants. And then we ponder and question how much more we have to give him to take care of our problem. But Micah is not having any of it. In anticipating our response, he, he becomes sarcastic on us in a sense, to show us how absurd our thinking is. In verse 7, he says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How far does it go? Where does it end? If one ram is good but not quite enough, then surely a thousand rams would be better. 
If an offering of oil would normally mark righteousness, then 10,000 rivers of oil would certainly make me holy. In fact, maybe I should consider offering my firstborn as a sacrifice for my sins. After all, if the rams can buy me a good relationship with, with God, how much more should offering the most precious thing I have, my firstborn child, gain me favor with God? Hear the absurdity. The Israelites would have recognized the absurdity. These are questions asked by people trying to bribe their way out of trouble. Such questions reveal how little we remember. The reason God dragged us into court in the first place is we keep acting like we are God and that the real God is the one looking for a handout. But Micah's words in this courtroom scene aren't about what God needs. They are, however, all about our calling to live like men or women who need our God. By the time Micah gets to verse 8, he can't stand it anymore. So he breaks into his own story to speak directly to us. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. In other words, don't keep asking God what you're supposed to do. And don't keep avoiding your calling with your favorite defense of being confused. God doesn't stutter when he speaks. You know what's right. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God has already told us what is good. And now what does he require of us? To do justice. Now, the most important thing to remember about the requirement to do justice is that we must never confuse it with believing in justice. God isn't impressed with the sincerity of our beliefs about justice or with our ability to lobby for justice, to vote for justice, or to demand justice for ourselves. The prophets in the Old Testament don't give us their theory about justice. They simply walked to the streets of Israel and Judah and were so horrified by what they saw that they told the people to start doing justice or stop calling themselves the people of God. Neither does the New Testament give us Jesus' personal opinions on justice issues. He resisted the public debates of his day over what should be done with the Samaritan issue, taxation issue, the adultery issue, or the Roman occupying army issue. Instead, Jesus cared for the people who had been beaten down by these issues. And in so doing, he did justice. Now, let me just say, I believe that we all need to have thoughtful positions on the issues that confront our society. But I also think that in a lot of ways, that's the easy part. What is much harder is to follow Jesus as he introduces us to the people behind the issues, or perhaps under the issues. Every justice issue has names, faces, and stories that that will break your heart associated with them. As the founder of the Sojourner community, Jim Wallace, has said, we really have no business talking about the poor unless we know who the poor are. Are unless we know people who are poor. His question to us would be, do you know poor people? How do you do justice for them if you don't even know them? 
Well, I do think that it's possible to help others without knowing them personally. The fact is, we can't all be hands-on in every situation. But his point is important and well taken. It's way too easy for us to sit back and have ivory tower discussions about social issues, but we'll never really contribute to the doing of justice until we are willing to get personally involved in the lives of hurting, broken people. Did you know that today is National Human Trafficking Awareness Day? Dr. Joanne Lyon, now General Superintendent of the Wesleyan Church, uh, formerly the head of World Hope International and still its board chair, uh, they're directly involved in doing justice for those caught up in human trafficking and this abhorrent evil. World Hope is part of an alliance called FAST, F-A-A-S-T, Faith Alliance Against Slavery and Trafficking. Dr. Lyon has been very successful in doing justice for countless people around the world because she's been willing to get personally involved, to get her hands dirty, so to speak. One of the things that Dr. Lyon does so well, one of her greatest gifts, I think, is her ability to put names and faces and stories with social justice issues. She personally gets to know those affected And then she tells their stories. We can't all travel to various places in the world and directly address the issue of human trafficking. But we can all become involved. We can give to organizations like World Hope. We can educate ourselves and others about the depth and scope of the problem of human trafficking. We can vocally stand against it at every opportunity. And we can pray for those involved in it and those fighting it. Human trafficking is just one social justice issue. There are many. God requires his people to do justice. But it's not just big social justice issues that God has in mind here. How do we treat our neighbors? Do we stand up for those among us who can't stand up for themselves? Are we fair and honest in all of our dealings with each other and with other people? Are we truthful about ourselves, even if it might mean we look bad on occasion? Or do we fudge the truth to hide our failures and mistakes and present ourselves in a much better light? But let's not stop there. How do you do justice to the sundry demands of home, children, aging parents, friends who are in need, work, church, coaching sports, a country at war? And now we're throwing the poor and the oppressed on top of all of that. All of these demands pull you in different directions. So if you do the right thing long enough, sincerely enough, hard enough, you know what you will soon be saying? There's too much. There's too much. We can't possibly do it all. To do right by one commitment is only to take time and energy away from another. I can't do justice to all these demands, we finally exclaim. Well, it gets worse. There's another requirement. What God requires is not only that you do justice because it is right, but also because you love kindness. 
Today's passage commands us to love kindness. The word used here for kindness in the Hebrew is hesed. It means loving kindness and carries with it the idea of an unshakable, steadfast love that God has shown to us. When we add God's loving kindness to justice, it removes the element of giving people what they deserve, which is so often associated with justice, and substitutes giving people what they really need. We do this because because, because that is how God responds to us. When... When God placed his loving kindness alongside his justice, God chose to give us not what we deserve, but what we need. And that is what we call grace. God isn't asking you to make sure that every part of your life gets just what it deserves. He's requiring you to give your heart to the needs of others. Isn't that just like the Bible? To take something difficult and make it impossible? We wonder how anyone can meet this requirement. No one can give his heart away so easily and frequently. I don't have that much heart. How can I give my heart to my colleagues and my family and the church and the nation and the poor and all my needy friends? Can't I just fix them? Fixing them would be much easier than giving my heart to them. Well, no. It was that kind of thinking that got us hauled into God's court in the first place. Again, we are not God. We can't fix people. The requirement is simply to do justice coupled with loving kindness. Next week is Praxis Week. The theme for the week is hospitality and welcoming the stranger. It's about doing justice and showing loving kindness to others. A wonderful opportunity for us to consider some of these things in greater depth. But we protest against our guilt. No one can love as faithfully and broadly as God does. That's exactly right. And that leads us to the third requirement God has always made for his people. And that is this, that we walk humbly with our God. As we sincerely seek to fulfill the first two requirements of doing justice and loving kindness, we'll inevitably be thrust into this third requirement of walking humbly with God. When will we ever have cared enough for the poor, the sick, or the brokenhearted? When will we ever be a good enough parent? When will we ever get the church fully sanctified and in order? Well, never. When will our love ever be as faithful and steadfast as God's is? Never. In effect, we, we must all make this one-word confession. Never. And we make that confession not to get ourselves off the hook, but rather to place ourselves squarely on it. We hold ourselves accountable for doing justice and loving freely, but not because we expect that we will always succeed. Rather, It's because as we try, God gives us strength. He keeps our hands more tightly within his hands. And then we make room for God to be God. I know most of us are really trying to live a good life 
We want to do justice. We would never say we're trying to do injustice. And we want to love and to show loving kindness to others. All of you would agree with that, I believe. But we're in court before God together. And it's because we keep forgetting that we are not in charge. God never asks us to be the Savior. He asks us to remember that we have a Savior and to walk humbly with Him as we attempt justice and love. To walk humbly means to remember that there is only one Savior and to remember that, that, when we have, uh, that what we have received has come from the bounty of His grace. To walk humbly means to remember with a grateful heart that we have received in order to give. And so when you fail at giving, sometimes day after day, rather than giving up as one more burned-out do-gooder, you who walk humbly with God must rise the next morning and try again, refreshed in the certain knowledge that God is still God. His Son, Jesus Christ, is still risen from the dead. The Spirit is still at work in the world. His grace is new every morning. And what does all that mean? That anything can happen on any given day. Perhaps a little more justice and loving kindness will even break into the world through your life. And the world will see Christ as a result. Aren't you glad that God is a God of second takes? A God of second chances? I am. God doesn't want to keep us in court for our failures. He does want us to confess our, that we need Him, to be real with Him, and to truly walk humbly with Him each and every day, doing justice and showing His loving kindness along the way. And when we do so, the world will sit up and take notice that there's something different about us, and we'll have genuine opportunities to share Christ and influence others for Him. Let's pray together. Merciful God, when it comes to walking with you, our confidence is more in your hold of our hands than in our grasp of yours. We truly want to do what you have required of us. We want to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with you. We are humbled by our many failures and the losses and hurts of life. Most of all, we are humbled by your grace, which always finds those who have lost their way and seeks to bring them home again. For all of these things, we will give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.